This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Weekend is taking a little break. So this week, the team has picked out their favourite pieces from the last few months, just in case you missed them. Coming up, reporter Carrie Paul asks why so many people are going goblin mode. Hadley Freeman shares some defining moments from one of the showbiz trials of the decade, the deliciously entertaining Wagatha Christie saga. And finally, in light of the plethora of period dramas currently in production, Charlotte Higgins asked, why are we Brits still obsessed with the Regency period? Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, after years of holding it together, and in a seemingly direct departure from the cottagecore influence of the early pandemic days, many people seem to have embraced the comforts of depravity in 2022. Here, Carrie Paul explores this year's concept of slobbing out and giving up. Read by Colleen Prendergast. At some point in the stretch of days between the start of the pandemic's third year and the feared launch of World War III, a new phrase entered the zeitgeist, a mysterious harbinger of an age to come. People were going goblin mode. The term embraces the comforts of depravity. Spending the day in bed watching 90 Day Fiancé on mute while scrolling endlessly through social media pouring the end of a bag of chips in your mouth, downing Eggo toaster oven waffles with hot sauce over the sink because you can't be bothered to put them on a plate, leaving the house in your pyjamas and socks only to get a single diet coke from the bodega. Inherent to the phrase is the idea that it can be switched on and off, said Dave McNamee, a self-described real-life goblin whose tweet about goblin mode recently went viral. Goblin mode is not a permanent identity, he said, but a frame of mind. Goblin mode is like when you wake up at 2am and shuffle into the kitchen, wearing nothing but a long t-shirt to make a weird snack like melted cheese on saltines, he said. It's about a complete lack of aesthetic. Because why would a goblin care what they look like? Why would a goblin care about presentation? First appearing on Twitter as early as 2009, Goblin Mode has also been linked by some to a viral Reddit post from a user claiming to secretly walk around their house like a goblin, collecting trinkets and making goblin noises. But according to Google Trends, it started to rise in popularity in early February and spiked after a doctored headline attributed a quote with the phrase to Kanye West muse and it girl of the moment, Julia Fox. Just for the record, I have never used the term goblin mode, Fox later clarified in an Instagram story. The Twitter user who made up the Fox quote as a joke said that while the headline was fake, she believes goblin mode is a very real phenomenon. Goblin mode is kind of the opposite of trying to better yourself, says Juniper, who declined to share her last name. I think that's the kind of energy that we're giving going into 2022. Everyone's just kind of wild and insane right now. On TikTok, hashtag goblin mode is affixed to videos of everything from smoking weed alone and getting scared to not taking your meds 
and hoarding weird shit just in case you run out. In other videos, it is associated with women wearing no makeup and mismatched sweatsuits, speaking confessional style into the camera. The trend represents a direct departure from the hyper-curated cottagecore influence of early pandemic days, a standout trend of 2020 that included pastel colours, bucolic scenery and the showcasing of wholesome homemaking skills, such as baking and embroidery. Cottagecore thrived under the wistful ethos of making the best of what many people assumed would be only a few boring weeks at home in 2020. But as the pandemic wears on endlessly and the chaos of current events worsens, people feel cheated by the system and have rejected such goals. Peter Hayes, a Bay Area tech worker who says he and his friends have jokingly called themselves goblins, said the term has taken off as the pandemic eliminated the need to keep up appearances. At home, there's no social pressure to follow norms, so you sort of lose the habit, he says. There's also a feeling that we're all fucked, so why bother? On TikTok, hashtag goblin mode is often accompanied by the adjacent phrase hashtag feral girl summer. That hashtag has 366,000 views and features videos of users proclaiming to be the opposite of that girl, a highly curated aesthetic popular on TikTok in recent years. There are nearly 3 billion views on videos using hashtag that girl, many of them show influencers organising pristine refrigerators full of freshly cut vegetables, making organic breakfasts and doing elaborate skincare routines. You have to start romanticising your life, they tell us as they make green tea lattes at home. The trend sets an unrealistic standard for girls to think that if they aren't waking up early to exercise, their lives are not put together, one blog indictment of that girl culture reads. I have absolutely no interest in being that girl, one video with 160,000 views says. I will never wake up at 5am and drink green juices and be hyper-organised. I will, instead, be in 4am Reddit holes, diet coke first thing in the morning, and fistfuls of raw pasta as a snack. Though they do not explicitly use the term goblin mode, videos expressing similar ideologies have been rising in popularity. My body is a garbage can with an expiration date, and I got no time for healthy shit, one with 90,000 views says, I love barely holding on to my sanity and making awful, selfish choices and participating in unhealthy habits and coping mechanisms, said another with 325,000 views. The Goblin Mode umbrella can encapsulate many kinds of aesthetics and behaviours, says Kat Marnell, an author who has been tweeting extensively in recent weeks about entering Goblin Mode herself. Although many people tweeting about Goblin Mode have characterised it as an almost spiritual level embrace of our most debased tendencies, Marnell says there is healthy Goblin Mode and destructive Goblin Mode. For her, it embodies a certain air of harmless mischief. The power of Goblin Mode is that it takes over your body, she says. It is a scrambling of the brain. It's when you act crazy and you enter a very mythological space you want to jump on the back of a salamander and make trouble. Call it a vibe shift or a logical progression into nihilism after years of pandemic-induced disappointment, but goblin mode is here to stay. And why shouldn't it? Who were we trying to impress, anyway? As one hashtag goblin mode audio says, If you can't handle me in goblin mode, you don't deserve me at my sleigh. It is cool to be a goblin, Marnell says. Everyone is so perfect all the time online. It is good to get in touch with the strange little creature that lives inside you. That was Slobbing Out and Giving Up. Why are so many people going goblin mode? By Carrie Paul. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Next. For all its silliness and surrounding irreverence, the Wagatha Christie trial marked a turning point in red-top journalism 
and provided incredible insight into 21st century Britain and its intersecting relationships between football, celebrity and the tabloids. Was Wagatha Christie silly? Absolutely. Was it irrelevant? Absolutely not, says Hadley Freeman. Read by Emma Stannard. This is not entertainment. Rebecca Vardy's barrister, Hugh Tomlinson QC, declared at the opening of the trial, referred to at the Royal Courts of Justice as Vardy versus Rooney, but known everywhere else as the Wagatha Christie trial. To borrow a favourite linguistic flourish of Vardy's, not being funny, but what are you on, my learned friend? For seven days, I sat in the front row of the multi-million pound libel trial and, to be honest with you, another favourite phrase of Vardy's, a phrase which led Colleen Rooney's barrister, David Sherborne QC, to retort, well, I'd much rather you're honest because you are sitting in a witness box. In all my many years of covering fashion and celebrities in this paper, this was the purest form of entertainment I have ever seen. Celebrity trials, from O.J. Simpson to Johnny Depp, are always fascinating because seeing a famous person in the dock, exposed and vulnerable, forced to answer the most awkward of questions, is like catching them on the toilet. Who can look away? Yet most celebrity trials involve allegations about serious crimes, murder, domestic abuse, sexual assault, which puts a kink in the enjoyability factor. This is where Wagatha triumphs over all previous celebrity trials and possibly every other celebrity story ever. It is high drama, but with the lowest possible of stakes. Why on earth are we here? Sherborne, a Melvin Bragg lookalike, asked in his opening statement. The answer, Mr Sherborne, is we are asking who Vardy was referring to in her text messages when she was talking about a nasty bitch. We are trying to ascertain whether Vardy deliberately sat in the wrong seats at the 2016 Euros. And most of all, we are asking, in these royal courts of justice, if Rooney was right to block Vardy on Instagram. Or was she being, as Vardy said at the time, a cunt? After however many years of non-stop news misery, this trial has been a balm on the soul of Britain. Whoever ultimately wins, and the judge, Mrs Justice Karen Stain, is expected to give her verdict in several weeks, the Queen should give damehoods to both Rooney and Vardy for services to their country. Wagatha, despite Rooney's insistence that she thinks the term is silly, I'm afraid there is no other name for this glorious hullabaloo, is about many things. It's about social media, the tabloid press, the Football Association, FA, celebrity. Side note, it's incredible to me how often I've heard people denigrate the case as an embarrassing guilty pleasure. Is Wagatha silly? Absolutely. Is it irrelevant? Absolutely not. But it's also about something else. And it was only by being in the courtroom that I understood it was about something bigger. Something almost, no, genuinely mythic. Wagatha is not just about the wags, a term that is, Rooney said in her testimony, not disrespectful. So consider that the canonical ruling. Wagatha is about all of us. Before we get to us, let's talk about them. On the one side of the bench, there was Rooney. Small, pretty, and strong as absolute nails. And on the other, there was Vardy, sleek and highly strung, a Siamese cat in shoulder pads. The two women had matching pouts and contoured cheek makeup, but the differences between them were as glaring as the shine off Vardy's poker straight hair. Rooney gazed serenely at Vardy during the three days she was in the witness box. Vardy looked at Rooney only once throughout the whole trial, when she was asked under oath if Rooney was right to describe her as a leaker. No, she was wrong, Vardy replied fiercely, whirling towards Rooney. This end-of-season episode of Footballers' Wives did not stint on the drama. Vardy dabbed her eyes in the witness box when recalling the mean things people online said about her children 
and collapsed entirely when Sherborne pointed to alleged inconsistencies in her claims that she doesn't leak stories to the Sun. Rooney didn't even blink when asked repeatedly about her husband's infidelities. Wayne, pink and pertubed as an undercooked potato, turned up every day, but his gaze never wavered from the middle distance and the only suggestion that he heard the humiliating questions his wife was forced to answer was his neck gently changing tint from pink to fuchsia. One afternoon, I spotted him outside the court signing autographs for some Everton fans, and I asked him what he was thinking about in court all day while he stared into space. Oh, I don't want to answer that. I haven't given any interviews about all this, he said, alarmed, and ran back to the safer embrace of his fans. Rooney, it's hard not to suspect, may have called in all of her husband's many debts to her to make him sit through this. In person, Wayne has the sweetly guileless expressions of a six-year-old and the complexion of a 60-year-old barfly. Given how ubiquitous coverage of Wagatha has been in this country, some laughed at his claim that sitting in the courtroom this week is the first time I'm hearing almost everything on this case. But I believe him. My wife explained that she believed the stories from the private Instagram account were getting leaked. I'm not big on social media and I didn't want to get involved, he said. And looking at where his wife's suspicion led them all five years later, who could blame him? Yet even those who have keenly followed the case from the beginning may well have become lost in labyrinthine details of this 21st century jaundice versus jaundice, which now involves every element of modern British culture. From Peter Andre, to I'm a celebrity get me out of here, to Roy Hodgson, to Soho Farmhouse. So for those people, and for Wayne, a quick recap of how we got to where we were when this trial began. Ostensibly, our story begins on 9th of October 2019, when Rooney published what the lawyers called the Reveal Post to her millions of followers across all of her social media platforms. She wrote that for several years she had suspected someone of selling stories from her private Instagram account to The Sun, such as about her outings to private members club Soho Farmhouse. Employing heretofore hidden sleuthing brilliance, she posted fake stories on Instagram. She was looking into gender selection for her next baby. The family's basement had flooded and alternately blocked and unblocked her followers, restricting access to the fake stories until there was only one account viewing these stories, which then appeared in the sun. This, Rooney wrote, proved she now had her culprit. It's Rebecca Vardy's account. The wags have become associated with many things over the years, from juicy couture tracksuits to Balenciaga handbags. This marked the first time a wag claimed ownership of a form of punctuation. I use dots a lot, she confirmed in her court testimony. Rooney broke the internet with this post, but the internet mended itself fast enough for Vardy to post her denial that she sells stories. I'm not being funny, but I don't need the money, she wrote. Given Jamie reportedly earns about £120,000 a week at Leicester City, this is perhaps the only comment she has made about this case that no one has contested. Rooney refused to back down. So did Vardy, and in June 2020, she launched a High Court defamation case. In English law, the burden of proof falls on the person who made the defamatory claim, meaning Rooney had to prove what she claimed. Matters did not start well for her when, in November 2020, in the first stage of libel action, Mr Justice Warby declared that it didn't matter that Rooney had carefully written Rebecca Vardy's account... The ordinary reader, the justice said, would still assume that Vardy had been selling stories. This made the case look unwinnable for Rooney, as she would now have to prove that Vardy personally passed on stories about her. But the upside to that ruling for Rooney was it meant her lawyers could now focus on Vardy's interactions with the media to show that, on balance of probability, Vardy sold stories. 
The game evened up in February of this year when Vardy's WhatsApp messages between Vardy and her agent, Caroline Watt, were disclosed, which included texts from Vardy saying, leak the story, and about one of Rooney's Instagram stories, would love to leak those stories, kiss. If they weren't exactly smoking guns, they had, to borrow a phrase from Rooney's barrister Sherborne, the whiff of cordite. And these weren't even all the messages. Only days after Watt was instructed to disclose the messages for the trial, she, alas, dropped her phone in the North Sea while filming the coastline. And many of Vardy's messages mysteriously vanished when she was trying to send them to her lawyers. Yet some messages did escape Vardy's IT disaster and the North Sea, such as one from Watt to Vardy after Rooney posted a message on Instagram complaining that someone she trusted was leaking stories about her. It wasn't someone she trusted, it was me, laughing emoji. The cordite thickened. In April, two weeks before the trial, Vardy admitted it was possible that Watt had leaked the stories, but insisted she herself was not involved. Watt did not appear at the trial, citing ill health, which made me suspect that perhaps she too had been dispatched into the North Sea. This story really began long before 2019. Some future historians may date its origins to the 2018 World Cup in Russia, when Vardy and several other wags were photographed together, which, according to Rooney's lawyer, Vardy secretly set up with the paparazzi without telling the other women. Vardy denies this, so it's extremely unfortunate that on the night the photo was taken, she sent what multiple WhatsApps about the women and a photographer. We may have to walk to the restaurant, kiss. Might be a good pick of us walking down, kiss. Others will go back a little further to the now fateful 2016 Euros, when Vardy sat behind Rooney during a game in seats that weren't hers, because, Rooney's lawyers allege, she knew it would make for a better paparazzi shot. Vardy also denies this. But the story really begins at the 2006 World Cup. Back then, photos of Rooney, Victoria Beckham, Alex Curran, wife of Steven Gerrard, Ellen Rives, former partner of Frank Lampard, and Carly Zucker, now Cole, wife of Joe, walking the streets of Baden-Baden, suddenly dominated the British media, outraging the FA and changing the life of a 25-year-old woman then called Rebecca Nicholson forever. The World Cup is when WAG culture became identifiable, aspirational and monetizable. It also became wholly bound up with the tabloids, which printed daily photos of them. And the snowflake that first fell in Baden-Baden became an avalanche, which last month barreled through Court 13 at the Royal Courts of Justice. Because libel cases are not tried in front of a jury, the other journalists and I were sat in the jury box, about two yards from Vardy and her team of lawyers, three yards from the Roonies, and facing directly opposite the witness box. This proved a little awkward at times, such as on the first day when Vardy sat on the stand facing me and was asked by an apparently outraged Sherborne why she told the News of the World in 2004 that Peter Andre is hung like a small chipolata. Did you feel strongly about the size of Peter Andre's manhood that it had to be made public? thundered Sherborne. His point was that Vardy has form in selling stories about people's private lives to the papers. But has there ever been a more innocent bystander in a libel trial than poor Peter Andre? The Roonies kept admirably straight faces during this and every exchange. The journalists were less composed, and a mass outbreak of sniggering struck the jury box, and the court, for the first and far from the last time, reprimanded us for laughing. Once, Vardy seemed to revel in her low-level celebrity status, writing guest columns in The Sun and appearing on reality TV shows such as I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. But during the trial, she dressed in an emphatically unwaggy way. All centre partings, long dresses and jackets with two sharp shoulders. All bought from the Joan of Arc section of Selfridges. 
Rooney stayed truer to her usual style, in girlish dresses and high street suits, pairing the surgical boot for her fractured foot with an impeccably waggish selection of single Chanel and Gucci loafers. Much snobbery had been directed at the wags over the years, but to all the people who laugh at how they dress, I ask you this. Have you ever seen a British barrister all done up in his powdered wig? Is that really less absurd than a woman from Liverpool with a massive designer handbag? Because this wasn't just a battle of the wags, but also of the wigs. And both sides had their own special lingo. With the wigs, it's all, my lord, this and your ladyship, that. Whereas with Rooney and Vardy, everyone is either fuming or buzzing. It was like hearing two very different languages spoken towards each other. And Vardy made a small smile whenever the barristers attempted to get their fruity lips around her salty texts. And then you replied, Mrs Vardy, fucking ridiculous kiss, Tomlinson quoted solemnly. Tomlinson was one of the founders of Hacked Off, the campaign for reform of the British press, so unlikely to be a fan of the sun. Instead, he prefers the works of French philosopher Gilles Deleuze, which he occasionally translates, and I wondered if he had been teaching Vardy the finer points of Deleuze when he asked her what she meant when she messaged what that she wanted to leak a story. I didn't mean leak, Vardy said. Sherborne later picked up on this on behalf of Rooney and asked her, Can we agree if a sentence reads that way, that's what it means? No, Vardy replied. The French philosophers would be proud. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Wagatha Christie. Sherborne is louder, brasher and tanner, with a reputation for defending celebrities and being photographed with them. He represented Johnny Depp when he lost his libel case against The Sun last year, so he too is unlikely to be a fan of the red top. Despite being paid what I was reliably told was well into the six figures for this case, both barristers confused Vardy and Rooney's names. Women, so hard to tell apart and Tomlinson in particular appeared to struggle to understand the finer details of Instagram, which surely should be within his pay grade. But Sherborne earned his fee when he managed to keep a straight face on the third day when he asked Vardy how she felt about Rooney after the reveal post. Sad, Vardy replied. Really, he huffed. And then he read out an interview Vardy gave the Daily Mail the day after the post. Arguing with Colleen Rooney would be as pointless as arguing with a pigeon. You can tell it that you are right and it's wrong, but it's still going to shit in your hair, he harumphed. Reader, I laughed and was again told off by the court. Vardy claimed that some of the quotes attributed to her in the press over the years are just nonsense, but I do hope she said that pigeon line. 
A large part of this trial was spent trying to untangle the gorgon knot that is footballers, their wives and the media. Whenever anyone referred to the press or the media in this trial, they meant the Daily Mail, the Mirror and most of all the Sun. These are the only papers on the WAG's radar, to the point that when Vardy was told by her media adviser that I was from The Guardian, she looked as perplexed as if I was covering the trial for Horse and Hound magazine. Vardy enjoyed a mutually beneficial relationship with The Sun. She posed for staged paparazzi shots and gave interviews, and they ran puff pieces with her and referred to her as Queen of the Wags. This is the quid pro quo of entertainment journalism. By contrast, the Roonies, being Liverpudlian and more private by nature anyway, never talk to the sun and are frequently trashed in that paper. Vardy wrote a diary of her time at the 2016 Euros for the Sun and she was suspected by Rooney and some of the other wags of being the source for the Sun's The Secret Wag column, which described footballers' infidelities and the wag's plastic surgery. Vardy denies this, but it took Sherborne about five minutes to get her to admit that she passed on a story to what about Jamie's former teammate Danny Drinkwater being arrested for drunk driving so that she would leak it to the sun. But that, she told Sherborne, was because I'm deeply affected by drink driving. Vardy's WhatsApp to what at the time? I want paying for this. Kiss. And okay, she conceded, some of her old WhatsApps look as if she was encouraging Watt to pass on other stories. About which footballer was shagging which other footballer's wife, about which wag had a miscarriage. But that was just her having a gossip. Sherborne asked what she meant in yet another WhatsApp to Watt when she said, can we not leak a story? Kiss. I meant I wanted to do a story about positive body image, Vardy replied. Do you not know what the word leak means? Sherborne asked. As there were no good answers to that question, Vardy wisely stayed silent. The FA learned at Baden-Baden that a gaggle of wags, a waggle, is a front-page photo. So they separate the wags at games to keep media attention on the sport. But at the 2016 Euros, Vardy sat herself behind Rooney and was duly photographed. Harpreet Robertson, then the family liaison officer for the FA, testified that when she told Vardy she was in the wrong seats, it led to an unidentified member of Vardy's party to reply, we can sit where we like, fuck off. When Sherborne asked Vardy about this exchange, she rolled her eyes and said, Mrs. Robertson took an instant dislike to me. Why would she take an instant dislike to you? He asked. I don't know, Vardy replied. The husbands visibly, palpably wanted to stay well out of this fight. And last May, Wayne sent a dove to Jamie via the romantic medium of a newspaper column in which he wrote that Jamie should be in the England team. I know some will be surprised at this, especially with the legal case between my wife and Jamie's wife, but this is my honest football opinion. But no doves were to be found in the courtroom. In his unexpectedly confident testimony, Wayne said that at the 2016 Euros, Roy Hodgson asked him, as the team's captain, to speak to Mr Vardy about issues regarding his wife and to ask his wife to calm down. The FA didn't want any newspaper columns, he said, referring to Vardy's Euro column in The Sun. I am sat here under oath. I 100% spoke to Mr Vardy, he said. Alas, the one day Jamie turned up was the day Wayne testified and it was Jamie's honest football opinion that his former team captain was talking nonsense. He never spoke to me about Becky's media work at Euro 2016. Shortly after issuing that statement, not as a sworn testimony, but via the possibly less legally binding method of a press release from his lawyers, he and his wife left the courtroom. When their lawyer explained their absence to the court by saying that Rebecca didn't feel well, Colleen tried and failed to swallow a smile.
In the greatest film ever made about female rivalry, Paul Verhoeven's 1995 masterpiece Showgirls, one character famously says, There's always someone younger and hungrier coming down the stairs after you. Vardy, 40, was not younger than Rooney, 35, but she had been hungry for a long time. In her testimony, Rooney said she struggled when the family moved to the US while her husband played for DC United. Because I've never moved more than 45 minutes down the road from my parents. Vardy was kicked out of home by her mother when she was 16. Rooney had been with Wayne since she was 16. Vardy met Jamie when she was 32 and had already been married twice and had two children. For these reasons and more, she is very different from most of the other wags, who, despite their collective reputation for flashiness, stay largely out of the limelight these days. Sure, they all have Instagram accounts and they write occasional columns, but these are invariably about their children, or mental health or well-being, all safely controversy-free subjects. What they very much do not do is write columns which imply they're as interesting as the players. Becky Vardy's Euro Diary. Or Court the Paparazzi, because they know the FA doesn't want that. The world of the wags is a traditional one, in which the women stay at home with the kids and shop with their husband's money. Despite Vardy's insistence that she doesn't sell stories because she doesn't need the money, Repeatedly in her WhatsApp messages, she frets about how much she is or isn't being paid for maybe or maybe not leaking stories. She has denied that she ever sold stories for money. It was just a fleeting thought. But, she later testified, I never wanted to rely on my husband for money. The Vardis and the Roonies have very different marriages. Jamie only made it to court once but he and Vardy spent the whole time with their arms entwined under the table. The Roonies sat together, but only occasionally conversed, with Rooney frequently writing urgently in her notebook during the testimonies, and Wayne only looking happy when he could get outside and talk with the fans who waited for him every day on the steps. Vardy refused to sign any autographs the one day he was in court, keeping a tight hold of his wife's hand instead. Wayne testified that, during the 2016 Euros, Jamie and Vardy FaceTimed so much that she was almost there with the team. By contrast, he said, he and Rooney hadn't discussed her plan to unmask the leaker because my wife is an independent woman. Nevertheless, he was there with her every day and he testified on her behalf while Vardy was left to cry on her lawyer's shoulders. Colleen Rooney described Vardy's WhatsApp messages about her as evil, and they certainly seemed to be the words of someone whose first instinct is to scrap for what she wants. When Watt messaged her that Rooney had blocked her on Instagram, Vardy replied, What a cunt. Kiss. If Rooney has claimed ellipses in this case, then Vardy can definitively lay claim to the sign-off. Kiss. Her lowest moment probably came when she and Watt were discussing how to find out if Rooney blocked Vardy because she suspected her of being the leaker. I never usually message her and say hi. Maybe I should say something about Rosie. Kiss. Vardy wrote, referring to Colleen Rooney's 14-year-old sister who passed away in 2013. If using someone's dead sister to ascertain why they blocked you on social media wasn't sufficiently punchy, Vardy followed that message up less than two minutes later with Not having her bad mouth me to anyone. If she's doing that, my God, she will be sorry. Kiss. In Rooney's witness statement, she has a whole section on Vardy's desire to be famous which she says was as much of a factor in her suspecting Vardy to be the leaker as Vardy's relationship with the son. Vardy said in court that she was forced by her ex-husband to do the 2004 kiss and tell about Peter Andre, but she was presumably not forced by any of her husbands to appear on I'm a Celebrity in 2017 or Dancing with the Stars in 2021. 
When the original wags were photographed in Baden-Baden, Vardy was working for a timeshare company and about to get divorced for the second time. This was the era in which being the glamorous girlfriend of a footballer was held up as the ultimate aspiration. And it was at this moment that she seems to have become more focused about what she wanted from life. One year later, she started a relationship with Luke Foster, a lower league footballer. A few years later, she met Jamie Vardy, who was in the early stages of his remarkable rise from non-league striker to late-blooming Premier League superstar. And it was soon after this point that the tabloids, especially The Sun, began to pitch the Vardys as the new Beckhams, the new glamorous king and queen of football. But as both of the Roonies emphasised in their testimonies, they have been in this game for a long time. And Colleen not only knows the rules about how wags should behave, but she, as the wife of England's best player for a generation, has set them. It's not a coincidence that during Colleen's reign, the wags have maintained a greater distance from the press than they did when the Beckhams were on top. In her first 2016 Euros diary for The Sun, Vardy wrote, I felt like the new girl at school. And it seems like she thought she could rewrite the rules. She was wrong. In her WhatsApp messages from the 2018 World Cup, she appears to be fretting that some of the women will put the group photo of the wags on their Instagram pages before the paparazzo can get it to the press. She was playing with 2006 tools, the tabloids, in a social media era. Wanting a group photo of the wags also shows the ongoing influence of Baden-Baden, even though today's wags have been so successfully hidden by the FA that Watt had to WhatsApp Vardy for help in identifying them in a photo. And while Vardy was cultivating alliances with journalists from The Sun, none of whom gave oral evidence in her defence, Rooney was setting her trap on Instagram all of her own. Vardy wanted positive press coverage and to be the queen wag. Instead, she has been denounced as a leaker. Not since Barbara Streisand sued a photographer to suppress a photo of her house on the internet, thereby bringing the world's attention to that photo, has a legal case gone so badly for a claimant. Never mind the Streisand effect. Launching misguided legal cases will surely now be known as the Vardy mentality. Why did she pursue this when she had so much to hide? My theory is she thought she could brazen it out. But Rooney, I think, saw the bigger picture. Even if she loses this case, she's already won the war, and she surely knows it. Due to the trial being extended, she and Wayne didn't turn up for the final day in court because, their lawyer said, they had a previous travel arrangement with their children, i.e. a holiday. Not even the judge begrudged them for that. Wagatha is such a great insight into 21st century Britain, with its intersecting relationships between football, celebrity and the tabloids. And to anyone sneering at Vardy for her Instagram messages, or Rooney for her Instagram sleuthing, let he who has never sent a bitchy text cast the first stone. And how else do we find out things about one another these days but through social media? But Wagatha is about something more timeless too. The Greek myths are full of warnings against the pursuit of self-glory and the dangers of underestimating a rival. And, like Icarus, Vardy flew too close to the sun. On the last day of the trial, she firmly reprimanded a journalist sitting next to me who she somehow knew was from the sun, for running a story about her plans to move to the US, which she said was cruel and untrue. Throughout the trial, Vardy glanced often at the journalists sitting near her, looking at us to see how we were reacting to Rooney's testimony. And she panicked when she caught me looking at what she was writing on a pad of paper. It was a doodle of a flower for the record. Meanwhile, Rooney never even glanced at the press, and she remains on her throne. When you come at the Queen, you'd best not miss. There might always be someone younger and hungrier behind you on the stairs. But, as Rooney wrote on her Instagram when she suspected Vardy was leaking stories, 
Don't play games with a girl who can play better. That was High Drama with the Lowest Stakes. What Really Happened at the Wagatha Christie Trial by Hadley Freeman. Read by Emma Stannard. Finally, this year saw the 19th century Regency period experience a renaissance throughout British popular culture with a slew of films, TV series and books hitting our screens and shelves. Inspired, Charlotte Higgins decided to explore why the genre is as popular now as it has ever been. Read by Evelyn Miller. The Regency, that narrow slice of history between 1811 and 1820, occupies a vastly disproportionate place in the British and increasingly the global imaginarium. Those nine years when the future George IV reigned as Prince Regent, owing to his father's incapacity, have recently birthed a second series of the frothily preposterous Netflix series Bridgerton, a second series of Sanderton, based on Jane Austen's unfinished novel, and a new film version of Persuasion, with Dakota Johnson as Anne Elliot. With Dakota Johnson as Anne Elliot. The Regency romance literary genre a bottomless well of Austin-esque love stories, has produced a summer bestseller this year in Sophie Irwin's A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting. Another, Suzanne Elaine's Mr Malcolm's List, has been adapted into a film starring Frida Pinto, also out this summer. You may think that the general favourite of Austin's novels, Pride and Prejudice, would be owed a rest from adaptation after Greer Garson, Jennifer Ely and then Kira Knightley's Elizabeth Bennet, after the zombie version, P.D. James's crime version, the Bollywood version, Helen Fielding's Bridget Jones version, the gay podcast version, the hilarious Scottish stage version, Pride and Prejudice, sort of, a West End hit that's returning home to Edinburgh this autumn. But no. The Netherfield Girls, a new Netflix series, is due to be released later this year, with teen comedy star Matrei Ramakrishnan the latest actor to tackle Elizabeth. The Austin's novels endlessly generate fresh versions, though, is not a sign that her adapters have nothing new to say. Quite the reverse. The Regency has become, according to Jenny Davison, Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University and author of Reading Jane Austen, a blank space where you can wrestle with whatever you want. The popularity of the Regency is nothing new. In fact, it is the sheer familiarity of the tropes of the Austenesque. Dances and drawing rooms, curacles and curtsies, frocks and froideur that allows it to occupy such a dominant position in popular culture. Don't you feel that you'd know what to do if you found yourself in a Regency drawing room, forced to make polite conversation about the doings of the local militia, which was the premise of 2008's Lost in Austin, in which a Pride and Prejudice fan found she'd switched places with Elizabeth Bennet? Under such circumstances, it is easy to forget that our received picture of the Regency is itself a confection and an invention – Bridgerton, with its counterfactual vision of a black queen Charlotte and black ducal families, as well as its stylized production design, seems more self-consciously artificial than, say, Andrew Davis's Austin adaptations for the BBC in the 1990s. But, argues Ollie Blackburn, director of Sanderton, those earlier adaptations were as fake as Bridgerton is now, it is rare that a historical piece is really, truly interested in what the past was actually like. Indeed, our vision of the Regency is a highly partial visual interpretation of a historical moment that was itself ruthlessly delimited by Austen for her own artistic purposes. Raymond Williams's classic 1973 book, The Country and the City, offers a useful reminder of just how selective Austin's fictional backdrop was through his comparative reading of three authors. Austin, the journalist and politician William Cobbett, and naturalist Gilbert White, who all lived within a generation and a few miles of each other in Hampshire, 
each saw the world quite differently. White was engaged in close scrutiny of the non-human, and Cobbett offered passionate political commentary alongside accounts of the poor and dispossessed, beyond the pale of Austin's rectory gardens and handsome estates. Cast back to earlier screen adaptations of Austin, and the fact of their speaking to the moment in which they were made becomes much more visible. The mise-en-scene of the 1940 version of Pride and Prejudice, with Laurence Olivier as Darcy and its screenplay co-written by Aldous Huxley, feels jarring now, with its costumes of the 1830s rather than the 1810s and its strong southern belle energies. The film's giant bonnets, its enormous acreages of silk and, goodness, does the film rustle, bespeaks a fascination with antebellum finery. It feels more part of the world of Gone with the Wind than England in 1813. Some adaptations, of course, modernise things completely. Clueless, 1995, still stands as the best and funniest of screen emmas. It's Beverly Hills high school setting turning out to be the perfect 20th century backdrop for the social snobbery and misguided matchmaking that play out in Austin's Highbury. The Austinesque has tended to enjoy larger waves of popularity during economically difficult moments. The first great revival of popular interest was in the 1930s, when Georgette Heyer began to publish the first of her fun, Austin-inspired romances, such as Regency Buck and The Corinthian. The second came on the heels of the recession in the early 1990s, bringing the BBC's Pride and Prejudice, Amy Heckerling's Clueless, Robert Mitchell's Persuasion, Ange Lee's Sense and Sensibility, scripted by Emma Thompson, and a little later, Patricia Rosimer's Mansfield Park, the last, intriguingly, forced audiences to examine the source of the eponymous estate's wealth, adding scenes alluding to the exploitation and abuse of enslaved people on the Bertram family's Antiguan plantations. The scholar, Edward said in his 1993 essay, Jane Austen and Empire, had argued that the novel is based in an England dependent on those discreetly mentioned plantations – despite the fact that the narrative is largely engaged in resisting or avoiding that other setting. The appeal of the Austenesque when the chips are down is partly straightforward. Austen's niece Caroline was once asked by a reader what her aunt had felt about the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars. It was a question that had never before presented itself to me, wrote Caroline, and though I have now retraced my steps on this track... I have found absolutely nothing. Austin's fictional world, in short, is a place walled off from the distressing facts of politics, war and violence, and necessarily, of course, from pandemics, social media, racist police shootings and the climate crisis. The real Regency was a time of corn laws, economic problems owing to huge spending on the war, the Peterloo Massacre and the failed harvest of 1816, which caused widespread hunger. Such events are so rigorously excluded from Austen's fiction that Mike Lee's 2019 film Peterloo, about the radical politics of the era, hardly reads as Regency at all. The particular nature of the 1930s Regency revival casts light on how we receive the Austenesque now. Heyer was writing in the wake of the first critical editions of Austen's novels by the scholar R. W. Chapman, published in the 1920s. As Davidson points out, these editions are especially mesmerised by the materiality of Austen's world – they include reproductions of Regency illustrations of carriages and Parisian headdresses, a.k.a. bonnets. Georgette Heyer's Regency romances amp up this fascination further, providing almost fetishistic descriptions of hats and dresses. These draw not on Austin, who is usually reticent on details of attire or objects, unless advancing a specific point about a character. 
But on the hectically detailed contemporary accounts in journals such as the Gentleman's Magazine of attire worn by the rich and famous. When Austin adaptations hit the screen in the later 20th century, this material world, already so cherished by Heyer, took on an even greater significance, simply by virtue of the change of medium from page to screen. This vocabulary of settings and things, wonderful Georgian houses and parks, elegant costumes, has by now become an aesthetic and a style, one that implicitly but insistently tells us things were better once. The most obvious characteristic of the Regency dramas of the current moment is their diverse casting. A different pool of talent has stepped into corsets and breeches. From Adua Ando's Lady Danbury in Bridgerton, to Pinto and Chopin Dirisu in Mr Malcolm's List. Bridgerton does more than employ a wider selection of actors. It sets up a speculative fictional relationship to the historical record that demands the suspension of disbelief, akin to how one might accept the premise of intergalactic space travel in Star Trek. It is exceedingly hard to imagine a way history could be counterfactually engineered to come up with its multiracial English beau monde, the real wealth of which depended on the labour of enslaved people in the Caribbean. By drawing attention to its fictional status so boldly, its historical adviser Dr Hannah Grieg argues, Bridgerton invites conversation about the actual status of black and South Asian people in Britain in the long 18th century. Others are less certain. Blackburn worries that though for audiences, the effect of seeing people who look like them on screen is enjoyable and empowering, the historian in me is not entirely comfortable. It gives a false impression of the past, and in general, I don't think that's helpful. A film that in some ways takes a very different tack from Bridgerton, The New Persuasion, directed by Carrie Cracknell, is also explicitly anachronistic. In the script there is talk of downsizing, a playlist, and of marriage being transactional, as if modern women have been parachuted into a Regency setting that they must negotiate and can comment upon. Dakota Johnson gives quite a lot of eye-roll to the camera, fleabag style. Laura Wade, in her recent play The Watsons, a witty adaptation of Austen's unfinished novel of the same name, comes up with another solution. She inserts herself, that is, a character named Laura, into her Pirandello-flavoured drama in order to grapple with the problem of how a 21st century writer might, or might not, reconcile herself to the constrained world occupied by Austen's heroines. This is a new turn in the Austenesque. It follows a general change in the contemporary relationship with history, in which the moral and ethical shortcomings of the past, as seen from the present, are less likely to be forgiven. These new dramas solve the problem by becoming ahistorical, or else they employ a knowing tone, such that, to use Cracknell's words, we are somehow watching people trying to break out of their time. She adds, we are drawn to Anne Elliot because she is very gently testing and slightly mocking the world around her. The kind of playfulness seen in works such as Cracknell's Persuasion and Wade's The Watsons is to be expected at this particular point in the development of the Austenesque. The implicit rejection of the idea of the authentic is possible because the screen version of The Regency is so familiar that it has become a form in itself, or even a species of British mythology, a set of tropes that can be endlessly reinvented and reinterpreted. For the British, only two other historical periods have a similar status in popular culture. The Second World War, which is used to fantasise about a quite possibly illusory and certainly long gone moment of national virtue and greatness, and the Tudors, where ideas about sex, power and politics can be enjoyably worked through. The 21st century version of the Regency offers something else to our particular moment. A way of thinking about display, incredibly fine social distinction, 
ethics in relationships and status anxiety, all of which seems well-suited to our Instagram-saturated culture. And if it is a hallmark of Austin's world that her heroines have extremely limited decisions to make, that may, after all, be the perfect metaphor for a generation in their 20s and 30s who see their life choices equally limited, not by marriage prospects, but by a set of economic circumstances that seem just as uncontrollable and arbitrary. In the end, the stories written by Austin and by her many progeny are about women surrounded by artificial, sternly judgmental and deeply constraining patriarchal systems who struggle to break through them to find human connection and love. That struggle, as they say, continues. That was A Look Under the Bonnet. Why Are We Still So Obsessed with the Regency Era? by Charlotte Higgins. Read by Evelyn Miller. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's best of articles were read by Colleen Prendergast, Emma Stannard and Evelyn Miller and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.